Solar panels have a life cycle. The billions of panels covering roofs and once pristine landscapes and maybe even your office building will all need to be disposed of and replaced at some point. Now the Energy Department has issued an action plan for how to safely and economically handle photovoltaic materials that have worn out. Here with the details, the Energy Department's photovoltaics program manager, Lenny Tinker. Mr. Tinker, good to have you on. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So I didn't realize these things don't last forever, but they don't. What happens? How do they wear out? Well, there's a lot of different ways that they can actually wear out. Typically, what happens is that, you know, they're outside. They're exposed to, like, the elements. And so different things can happen through thermal cycling. Cracks can propagate. Contacts can oxidize. But effectively, the energy output of the system starts to decrease over about 20 to 30 years is the expected lifetime. All right. And then inside these materials that actually produce the current, are these hazardous materials? Are they safe to handle? What are the issues? Well, there's a variety of different materials inside the modules themselves. Mostly the modules are totally safe, but there are some materials that are used that can be actually dangerous. For example, lead can be used in the solder, like many of the electronics that we all use. And therefore, it's important that people follow EPA regulations and testing for how to deal with the materials. Got it. And is the disposal generally carried out by commercial companies locally? Suppose I have a building and there's a lot of photovoltaic cells. They have to be removed. Who does that kind of work in general? So that work is typically contracted out and the disposal themselves, depending on the actual models being used. So there are these uh, tests that are regulated by the EPA known as Toxicity Characteristic Leaching Protocols or TCLP. So those modules would be tested. That would then determine how they had to dispose of, whether or not they'd be considered hazardous waste or could be disposed of as just general landfill waste. And then typically someone would contract out someone to actually take down the system and then dispose of it uh, appropriately. All right. So what are the dangers here? And tell us about the action plan. What is the Energy Department trying to do here with the action plan? So our goal with the action plan is to indicate for the community and to set a direction for how we could be even better than the regulations that I mentioned that are stipulated by the EPA. So we see there's potentially a possibility to improve the way the materials are disposed of and actually increase the recycling potential of the entire system. Now, the bulk of a PV system is steel and aluminum and copper, and the recycling procedures for that are pretty well worked out, um, the current industry. But the modules themselves, because they're composite and composite materials and a little more complicated, there's some opportunity to figure out how to better recycle and recover the value of those modules. And so in our action plan, we lay out a direction for research that could be done, as well as stakeholder engagement and aggregating data so everyone's aware of what's actually going on with the modules, such that we can you know, make PV as, as good for the environment as possible. And of course, when you do recycling carefully and removal and recycling, it can be expensive. And so is the economics of this part of the calculus? Oh, absolutely. The economics are the foundation of a lot of the decisions that people are making in terms of energy and actually disposal of uh, systems. So right now, recycling can be about almost 10 times as expensive as just general disposal. And so what we're trying to do is look at, you know, like I said, how can you better recover value out of the modules when you recycle them? Because that, of course, helps pay for the recycling itself. And also, how can you develop modules in a way or produce them in a way that makes them even easier to separate? 
We're speaking with Lenny Tinker. He's a Energy Department Photovoltaics Program Manager, part of the DOD's Solar Energy Technologies Office. And the materials that are rare that are in these might be outsourced originally from the United States. Is there the possibility that by recycling properly, we could almost develop a source of rare materials from, in effect, mining the old solar panels right here in the United States? Absolutely, there's opportunity to recover rare and valuable materials from photovoltaic systems. The bulk of the system as a whole is, like I said, steel and aluminum and copper. Now, that's the system. In the modules, there are some more precious materials, such as silver, which is used on the front to collect the electricity. There's also small amounts of other materials, depending on the module, such as tellurium, which could be recovered. The absolute magnitude of what could be recovered from PV systems, you know, for a while, can be quite low because the majority of systems deployed right now, over 75% of them have been deployed in the last five years. And with an expected lifetime of 25 to 30 years or maybe even longer, there's not a lot to quote unquote mine now. But that being said, there is an opportunity to recover those materials when the time comes for decommissioning. Sure. Mining was my word, but the idea is they could at some point in the future be recovered and reused to make new panels. Absolutely. One of the main goals of the Department of Energy Solar Office is to make sure that we recover as much value out of the system, which helps the economics on the levelized basis for electricity so that solar can be even cheaper than it is today. All right. And this action plan, then, who is it specifically aimed at? The action plan is aimed at all of our stakeholders. It's a way for us to signal to people that would apply to our office, as well as people that are involved in the solar industry and in policymakers for what we see as an opportunity and a future direction for solar waste management. Yeah, so this could be kind of a new niche industry in waste management if it's done properly, fair to say? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's already companies today looking at how they could get into this industry. And does DOE have any sense of the tonnage or square footage or ounceage, I don't know what the right measures are, for these materials that will be eventually need to be recycled in the future? Yeah, so we can make predictions on the actual amount that could be released. The current administration has an ambitious goal to have 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035. And in that scenario, we actually end up ramping solar deployment quite a bit. We still think that the amount of waste that will be generated by PV systems is actually relatively low, so less than about a tenth of a percent of total waste. So we can break into the actual the tons here and there and how that fractions out. But the point is, is that it's a significant but not extraordinarily large amount of waste. Okay. And are you one of those uh, solar panel on the roof kind of guys yourself? Unfortunately, with my current house, it didn't work out, but I am a, a member of a community solar program where I can pay into the system and then have electricity generated for my uh, bill. Or you could put up a steeple with a windmill on top. That would be a lot more challenging and definitely not as scalable as a PV system, which can be made almost any arbitrary size. All right. Lenny Tinker is a photovoltaics program manager at the Energy Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, 
Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calm and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? 
What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit Shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 